Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, we are likely to have a new administration in very soon. The questions abound. One of them is, how would this new administration deal with China, particularly the economic challenges with China. Nobody better to have that discussion than Carl Weinberg, founder and chief international economist at High Frequency Economics. Carl, thanks so much for joining us here. It's been a rough, bumpy four years, to say the very least, between the U.S. and China as it relates to trade. How do you think things will be different with a Biden administration? Well, that is uh, the question of the day, and uh, I personally am looking forward to see uh, what kind of a team uh, President-elect Biden puts together at the U.S. Special Trade Representative's office to give us some guidance as to how this is uh, going to go. The tariffs have not worked. Uh, They haven't reduced uh, China's trade surplus with the United States in any measurable way. Uh, Since they've come on board, China's increased its exports to the United States by 16 percent, and its uh, imports are up only Um, 11.8%. That's not uh, a winning strategy, and it's a tax on Americans. Uh, Tariffs are one of the few tax areas President President Biden could reduce uh, on U.S. uh, uh, taxpayers without having to go through Congress. So there's a lot of potential there, but of course, we don't want to be backing away from the critical issues of differences that we have with China. So we need a sharp guy at the trade, uh, Representative. Mm, if you took President Trump out of the picture and the last four years, if we could just you know, erase that for the moment, what would a Biden plan towards China be? It feels like maybe he has to be a little bit more inviting to China given the last four years. But if that hadn't happened, he could be a lot tougher on China. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, he's certainly a lot tougher again on China now than he was when he was vice president. And of course, the, the playing field has changed a lot. It's more than just economic issues that separate us. We have human rights issues. We have Hong Kong on the table just within the last 24 hours, 48 hours. We've seen uh, China make moves uh, to impose its rule on Hong Kong, which uh, the U.S. can't accept. We've got Taiwan issues. We've got India issues. We've got all kinds of human rights issues. So, um, it's not just a simple matter of commercial tariffs to achieve commercial goals. So the tricky part here is going to be to back down, I think, on the tariffs, but at the same time to uh, find ways to uh, put pressure on China, perhaps through non-economic ways or through economic ways to try to achieve and to maintain our belief in some of these other goals. So, Carl, give us a sense. It sounds like, from what we can see, that China is getting back to work, that their economy, um, they've seen the worst of it as it relates to COVID. What do you know about the economy in China and how that may uh, influence kind of their negotiating posture? Yeah, so China's economy is growing. They seem to have contained the coronavirus better than we have. There's no sign of a second uh, wave of outbreaks over there. Whatever outbreaks we've seen have been contained in clusters rather than becoming community spread, and the numbers are quite low. And as a result, their economy is growing. At the same time, they're increasing their exports to the rest of the world because they can, because they're at work and they're producing stuff, and they're being aggressive in terms of getting their merchandise out there. So we're seeing their export revenues go up, and we're also seeing them redeploy those export revenues into direct investment in other countries. 
building up their silk routes and um, uh, making direct uh, support and aid investments in other countries, uh, sometimes against the wishes of the United States, like in Iran. And that's helping them promote their economic agenda and project their economic and diplomatic power around the world. They're taking good advantage of their uh, advances and their, their windfall on public health. Yeah. Speaking of which, Carl, how is the U.S. economy these days? We, we just got poor confidence data this morning and, and poor inflation data this week, too. Yeah, well, Vani, you don't need me to tell you that we're in uh, for a rough time here. You know, Jay Powell said it yesterday uh, at the virtual ECB conference, and everybody who talks about the U.S. economy tells the same story, and they're all right. The, uh, the coronavirus outbreak that we're currently experiencing is debilitating. It not only causes us to lock down our enterprises, but it forces enterprises that are in lockdown to shut down as infections spread. Uh, this is going to be a loss of production. We're in for a really, really dark fourth quarter of this year. Carl, what do you make just broadly defined of a Biden administration, a Democratic House and I'm sorry, a, a, a Democratic House and a Republican controlled Senate? What does that mean, do you think, for economic policy over the next several years? Well, if that's the way it works out, and as you know, the Senate is still up for grabs. We still have two by-elections in Georgia. But assuming that the Republicans keep the House, that's going to stymie uh, Biden's efforts to pump stimulus into the economy. The Republicans just don't seem to be going for it. And um, it's going to mean that a lot of the objectives on a social level, as well as an economic and political level that the Democrats want to do, just simply aren't going to happen. It's also going to constrain uh, choices of the Biden administration for uh, cabinet jobs. I don't think Republicans will block all appointments, but some of the requests of the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party for more progressive cabinet members, they're going to be hard to bring about with the Senate having to approve all appointments. So it's going to be a tougher haul for Biden to be successful in his agenda that the Republicans keep the Senate. And uh, that, of course, as you know, is in the hands of the voters of Georgia right now. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, won't the Republicans want the economy to do well as well, though, in order to sort of keep up their support? Well, you know, I'm not a Republican, Bonnie, and I'm trying really hard to understand Republicans. I have an outreach program, and I wish that they would explain to me why they think it is in their interest and the national interest to slow down, you know, support for the economy as it goes through this terrible contraction. And to, um, I understand some of the uh, disagreements in principle, uh, and that's okay, uh, but I don't understand why they would want to shut down the business of government trying to promote the general welfare right now. So you'll have have to ask a Republican that question, but from my point of view, uh, I admit that I'm stumped. You're stumped, and it's not often that Carl Weinberg is stumped. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Carl, we could talk all day, but unfortunately, we're coming to the end. Uh, just uh, briefly, your you know GDP forecast. GDP forecast. Fourth quarter is probably going to be down. Uh, let's broaden it to the world, okay, because what we're seeing in Europe is a lot more severe in terms of the outbreak and a lot more severe in terms of the shutdowns that we're seeing. And, of course, in the emerging world, where they produce a lot of the raw materials that feed our industrial machine, there are going to be problems in debt service. Yeah. There are going to be problems for bondholders. There's going to be a lot of restructuring coming up. It's going to be a really grim fourth quarter, and it's going to carry over into next year. And certainly Janet Yellen used to talk about the feedback loop all the time from international economies to the U.S. and vice versa. Carl Weinberg, thank you for joining us today. That's Dr. Carl Weinberg, founder and chief international economist for high-frequency economics. 
It is time now to take a look at Disney. Shares began the session higher. They're still up, but they have been erasing some gains up about 1.1% now. Severe changes throughout the pandemic to the business model. Let's bring in Tara LaChapelle, Bloomberg Opinion, who knows everything there is to know about Disney. She is the Media and Deals columnist. So Tara, your takeaway thoughts after last night's earnings? Yeah, I mean, the takeaway is that streaming is front and center right now, and Uh, That's not such a bad thing because these other businesses are still being bludgeoned by the pandemic. Uh, The cruises aren't going to be back in operation until at least after this year. Not all the theme parks are open and the ones that are open are operating at reduced capacity, of course. Uh, The film business obviously really had nothing significant this year because movie theaters were closed. And the TV networks, I mean, they're they're doing okay because their costs are down because they couldn't really you know, produce much content for the year, but the the outlook isn't, you know, great, obviously, with streaming taking over and more people cutting the cord. So I think, you know, investors just want to hear them talk about streaming, streaming, streaming. It's all about Disney Plus. And I think that's why the stock is up, despite, you know, the, the company not reporting great results expectedly because of COVID. Terry, you've got a great, great column out on this Disney earnings. And in your column, you say Disney recently was, you know, a theme park company, a media network company, a film studio, plus some streaming. Now you think of it now as a streaming giant plus some other stuff. That's a big change. Yeah, it's like everything's kind of moved to the other side of the plus sign. You know, Disney Plus, (laughs) it's it's obviously not making money. I mean, we can't, you know, that, that is still true. Like Disney Plus doesn't make money. It's going to be a little while before it does, but just in terms of the growth and the direction of where this industry is going, there are positive signs that Disney's doing a pretty decent job with it. They've got 73 million subscribers to Disney Plus, um, and it's all about, you know, trying to catch up to Netflix and just keeping those subscribers loyal. And Bob Chapek, the CEO, talked on the call last night about how they do that, which is really ramping up the number of shows and movies that are available to Disney Plus subscribers, either in the form of what they did with Mulan, where you're a Disney Plus subscriber paying $7 a month and then you pay $30 one-time charge on top of that to watch Mulan, or like what they're doing with Pixar's Soul, which is just going to be available for no extra charge to Disney Plus users. And so they're kind of experimenting with that and with this big reorganization that Chapek announced uh, the other day where they're going to you know, put all the content creation side of the media and entertainment business into one unit and they're just going to focus on making content and then they're going to have this other group that just focuses on figuring out where to put that content whether it's on the traditional cable networks whether it's in a movie theater whether it's on disney plus or some form you know going back and forth between those uh, for instance at&t is is going to release wonder woman 1984 uh it's supposed to be christmas day and then a couple weeks later they might put it right on hbo max So we're really starting to see these companies change their strategy when it comes to where content, big content, expensive productions are going to wind up. Wow, that is fascinating. What about the theme parks? Do they emerge much smaller, much less staffed? It's it's really hard to know right now. I mean, it seems like uh, Chapek and also Brian Roberts at Comcast which owns Universal Studios, are really optimistic about the theme parks business, that that will come back. They don't seem to be talking as optimistically about movie theaters, but theme parks, they really seem to like that business a lot. For Disney, the Parks and Cruises division had over $1 billion loss for the fourth quarter, and the total impact on profit from COVID so far just for that business has been almost $7 billion. 
So they're really hurting. But I think that these companies are optimistic that it will come back. It's just going to take a while. A combination of, you know, in California with Disneyland trying to work with the, the state government there, which is really opposed to reopening. And then also, you know, trying to get people comfortable again with travel and, and visiting these, you know, big crowded spaces. Tara, what do we know about the role of Bob Iger? You know, he stepped down as CEO to much fanfare, going to be a chairman for a while. Then as COVID came on, um, potentially coming back and taking just a little bit more of a bigger role. Do we know what his role is right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the speculation when he did step back and then COVID hit was that Bob Iger is going to come back and kind of be pulling the strings behind the scenes, even though he's no longer CEO. You know, he's still executive chairman. But I'm not sure that it's actually working out that way. To Disney's credit, Bob Chapek is really calling the shots, and that's at least what it looks like to people on the outside. I mean, he, this is his reorganization. And as someone who came up through the, the park side of the company, I mean, he's really doing a lot to put the focus on streaming. And so I think he's making the right moves, and, and you know, people are pretty pleased with what he's doing and making the best of a tough situation this year. And we haven't really heard anything from Bob Iger. He didn't speak on the call last night, I don't think. And it's just been really quiet on that front. And I think that's what they needed to do in order for it to be seen as an actual, you know, succession where Bob Chapek is the CEO of Disney now. What about sports viewing? Disney was insisting that it's not a problem that the live sports going away for the most part is not hurting. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, sports came back in the fourth quarter, so that hurt them in some ways because it meant that their costs went up a lot because sports programming is very expensive. But I think overall they're happy to see sports back. It's just without the vaccine, we don't know what this is going to look like. And by the time, you know, we're able to go back to, quote, normal in some way, uh, you know, people have been cutting the cord and are they hanging on to these expensive, you know, sports? subscriptions. I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to know. ESPN is cutting like 300 jobs right now. So it's, it's not looking great. It, it makes me wonder, you know, for a long time, people have speculated whether Disney would ever kind of spin off ESPN or separate from it. And now in hindsight, it's like, you know, maybe they should have done that. You know, that's the business that it really there's a lot of unknowns because of COVID and because of streaming. So they're getting hit from both sides. Tara, how's... Um people reacting to that organization you referenced. There was a pretty big reorganization of the management team to try to focus more on streaming. Some people were kind of scratching their heads. What's kind of the feedback you're hearing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's got to be really tough if you work in those businesses right now. If you're a manager, you know, you've kind of had some of your responsibilities taken away, perhaps, because if you're just, if you know, if you work for the cable network and you're just focusing on content now, you don't really have a say over where that content goes. And streaming has kind of become... the the big thing that they're focusing on. And so if you're in these other businesses, you might feel a little bit slighted. Um, But I think what Bob Chapek tried to say on the call last night is that they're doing this in a very organized way and they're making it clear what people's responsibilities are, that if you're a creative, you're in a creative role, focus on that. And if you're in a role to market and, and distribute content, focus on that. And that'll make it a more organized, um, you know, process and maybe make it easier for Disney to do this in a way that doesn't disrupt the empire so much. But of course, right now, I mean, I, I imagine it's going to be really hard to be there. It's just like everything just changed yep. overnight. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Hey, Tara, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, your thoughts and insight. Tara LaChapelle, she's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. She covers entertainment, telecommunications, uh, and deals. She joins us on the phone from New York City. And again, uh, 
better than expected results out of Disney. I think the expectations were quite low given the pandemic, and we know the impact it's having on its business. But again, this is a company that's pivoted towards streaming business, and they put us some really good streaming numbers last night. Boy, when you think about the U.S. agricultural sector, rural America, lots of challenges, climate-related disasters, weak ethanol and biofuel demand, U.S.-China trade tensions, and that that's not enough COVID-19 pandemic. Many, many challenges for the U.S. agricultural industry and rural America to get a sense of what rural America, U.S. big ag will look like potentially under a Biden administration. We welcome our next guest, Arun Sundaram, equity research analyst for CFRA Research based in Washington, D.C. Uh, Arun, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, tough times for the U.S. agricultural sector, rural America. What's the feeling under a Biden administration about potential changes? Hey, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, you mentioned, you know, under the Trump administration, you know, although the Trump administration has tried to paint itself as an ally to farmers, uh, the unfortunate truth is, you know, the past few years have been nothing short of difficult for the agriculture sector. You know, we've had the U.S.-China trade war, various climate-related disasters, weak demand for ethanol and biofuels. And then obviously the COVID-19 pandemic um, has wrecked havoc on the sector. But uh, we believe a, under a Biden administration, you know, there'll be a, a lot more positive implications for the sector um, rather than negative ones. You know, Joe Biden's policies are much more moderate than most of the other Democrats that are running in the Democratic primary. You know, Biden's biggest goal is to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. So I, I think he'll want to work with the agriculture industry to, to practice more you know, sustainable farming methods. And I think he'll incentivize them to do so. So really anything that's you know, related to green, clean energy should support farmers, uh, particularly corn farmers, I think, in the United States, because uh, they have been increasingly reliant on the ethanol industry. But unfortunately, the ethanol industry over the past few years have been, the industry has been significantly pressured. Um, you know, I think last year, 2019, the ethanol industry uh, production fell for the first time in nearly a decade. So mm. Um, when when Joe Biden comes in, I think anything that's related to clean, green energy uh, should support uh, uh, farmers, agribusinesses, and uh, and be a big relief for the industry. Arun, what about the relationship with China and how farmers fit into that? China, you know, sending crops and so on to the United States and vice versa, exports. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, the good news right now, at least, is uh, over the past few months, China has significantly accelerated uh, its imports of, of U.S. agricultural products. Um, but unfortunately, they're still you know, well short of its uh, commitment requirements as part of the, the phase one U.S.-China trade deal that was signed earlier this year. Um, you know, unfortunately, that trade deal was signed, I think, a, a less than 10 days before China went into lockdown. So obviously, China's been really slow to, to uh, purchase uh, U.S. agricultural products. But the good news is, at least right now, it looks like they are accelerating their, their imports. But I think when, when Joe Biden comes in, um, I don't think he'll completely scrap the existing phase one agreement or immediately remove tariffs because, you know, it'll be prudent to get something in return. You know, I, I think instead Joe Biden will work with other allies to, to set some ground rules for China, um, which includes topics like, you know, human rights, climate change, um, and, and, and then go, go, go from there. But, um, but like I said, the good news is China is accelerating their, their U.S. agricultural imports, and, and hopefully that continues. What are some of the, the areas that have been particularly hard hit when you look at the U.S. ag uh, industry? Uh, what are some of the big areas? Yeah, I mean, uh, the biggest areas are, you know, 
dairy farmers, uh, you know, soybean farmers, corn farmers, you know, they've they've all been, you know, like I said, going through uh, the past few years have been just incredibly difficult on all of them. Um, but you know, I, I think when 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 Biden comes into um, into uh, uh, the seat, I, I think when when he goes to choose his agriculture secretary, uh, I think he or she will need to focus on you know the, the long term and, and make some more impactful change than you know some of the short term uh, I, I call it short term band aids that are being handed out right now to farmers. Uh, right now, there's a lot of you know subsidies and, and grants being handed out to farmers, but but farmers want to make their own income, so. I think going forward, you know, we'll need to, you know, expand trade opportunities and um, really open up the market for, for our farm economy. How are they doing out there? I mean, I've been asking questions over the last several days about supply chains and so on. And, you know, how has the farming community dealt now with eight months of, you know, lockdown in many parts of the country? Yeah, so yeah, the, past, the past eight months have been very difficult. You know, in the beginning... Um, you know, farmers had to, you know, they had to leave their, their, their crop in the plants. They were unable to harvest them. And then also um, uh, the, the meat processing industry has, has, has gone through some challenges as well. You know, uh, many farmers had to, had to call their livestock because there was just, there was just no end demand for, for their products because of the essential shutdown to the food service industry. Um, but, but, it, but the good news now is, you know, the economy is recovering. I, I, don't, I don't think anyone was expecting to, the economy to recover as fast as it is it is right now and and therefore supply and demand levels are beginning to balance um, which is a good sign but but obviously right now the, the number of covid cases are rising and there, there's a chance that you know we could have lockdowns again in the future um, which could put you know an imbalance to the supply and demand levels but um, the good news is we've, we've gone through lockdowns once and i think the industry is a lot more prepared to go through one again Arun, thank you. We will ask you to come back soon and give us a further update. Arun Sundaram is Equity Analyst at CFRA Research, talking there about uh, commodities, farmers, US-China relationship and lots, lots more. A difficult time for everybody, but uh, rural America has also had it extremely tough. There is a few mics, but only one in studio right now. Mike McGlone is with us, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Mike, a lot to get to, but give us an update on cryptocurrencies because we had that huge rally for Bitcoin, remember? And I guess I haven't really looked since then. What happened in that sector after that big, big rally? Bitcoin is a bull market that's had a significant correction in period of disdain, and it's just resuming that bull market. The key thing is that's really happened this year is fundamentals have really increased and improved. We have more demand, more adoption. It's going mainstream. You see that from from place, uh, companies like MicroStrategy uh, and Square. They're digging in. Even people like Stanley Druckenmiller are saying how he holds Bitcoin. So what I think is happening is Bitcoin is it's the virus that isn't going away. It's becoming more mainstream. And... This year, the supply basically was cut in half. So next year, if history is a guide, it could potentially be a very big up year for the price of Bitcoin. All right. Well, here's my anecdotal evidence about the <laughs> the you know bubble nature of Bitcoin. They're actually talking about it for long periods of time on sports radio in the morning. You got wow. the host. They're not talking Mets. They're not talking Yankees. They're trying to explain to each other, Mike, what is Bitcoin and no one knows, by the way. And why it's going higher, no one knows, by the way. But they're all buying it. So that, you know, that wow. has to be Do you call in sometimes, Paul? 
What's that? You need to call in sometimes. I know. Let I know. I'm know. Have, we, we'll tune in. I'm going to have Mike call in because <laughs> they're just dying for some information. Mike, um, let's talk crude oil here. Um, you've got this note out. And for those listening, Mike has by far, no question, the best charts uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence. His charts are so much detail. Uh, you can spend hours just looking at them. You've got a great chart where you're talking about more of a permanent bear market for crude. What's 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 your basis there? Well, thank you for that, Paul. I, I miss working with you in BI, but I do enjoy conversing with you on the radio um, and on TV. And the key point about uh, crude oils, it's a bear market that's come back to good resistance and fundamentals remain bearish. So that to me is the key thing that makes me look very fearful that WTI around 40 is more likely to go to 30 than the 50s. The key thing is just got back to this 52-week moving average, which is heading lower for the first time since January. We see what's happening in COVID. OPEC has a meeting coming up and they have to sustain cuts, yet they need money. It's getting really bad. So it's almost a perfect storm for the bear market to simply continue and resume. And the key thing, it's highly correlated with bond yields. So a lot of people are looking for a steepening curve, higher bond yields. And I like to say is good luck with that one if crude oil takes the next leg lower and it's, you know, it's enduring bear market. Right. We had that that effort, let's say, at a solid few dollars of a gain, but we're back down 90 cents today. We're still above $40 a barrel, but flirting with that level. So is there a catalyst that sends it much lower or much higher? More the same. That's yeah. the problem. It needs more cuts. It needs to reduce supply, which is indicative of the biggest problem in crude oil. Rapidly advancing technology, demographic ships, and now we have COVID. Supply is just no, supply is very much just waiting to come on. And elastic is and, and demand is just no more no longer elastic like it was in our you know 10, 20 years ago. Hey, Mike, we just had a a guest on an analyst uh, talking about some of the agricultural companies, talking about some of the consumer products companies. Under a Biden administration, if I'm a farmer, you know. What am I thinking? You're saying, yay, thank you. The end is over for Trump, <laughs> for uh, the Trump um, bottom. Now, the good news is um, President Trump wrote checks to farmers. They enjoyed that, but that just increased production. That's the world's worst way to end the market. So I think we're going to look back at, at the Trump administration as the enduring low in grain prices, as we used to look back at 2012 as enduring high. Because what we have going forward is a potential weak dollar, the, the trade war with China over, exports picking up, and the, the, what they used to say in commodities is the cure for low prices is low prices that's really kicking in so the key thing i'm watching is corn looks like it's finally staying above four it looks like it's heading closer to five or six and four dollars should now be which was resistance for five years and during the trump administration should probably become support mike a quick word on things like soy wheat all those commodities that sort of trade outside the country as well as inside Yes, the key d derivative and demand in the indicator for prices is U.S. exports because soybeans and corn and wheat, the primary most liquid futures in the world are based on U.S. products that are exported and delivered and traded in the U.S. So U.S. exports have kick are picking up. For instance, soybeans and wheat just went past the 50% threshold of production, and that should continue, particularly if we have a weaker dollar. Mike McGlone, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We always learn so much about the commodity space. Mike McGlone, he covers all commodities. He's a strategist there for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, and he's probably the only one in the Bloomberg building that understands uh, Bitcoin, and he's explained it to us a million times, but I'll Are leave you it tempted, there. Paul? Uh, I am not. I am not. But um, when I hear sports, uh, uh, you know, guys on radio talking about Bitcoin, it, it just kind of gets me a little bit nervous. But maybe they know something uh, that we don't know. Mike's been on top of that Bitcoin story from day one. So it's really fascinating. And you take a look at that chart. And it is a good looking chart for Bitcoin. But uh, I think I'll stick to stocks and bonds and some of those more boring instruments. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.